I was watching Storm, the shell duck went and it was flying and Storm was quite, quite way out as well. And she came steaming across the sky and then put in that stoop. And I was just watching this never ending stoop. I mean, she was just coming and coming and coming. By then I had no idea where the duck was, how high the duck was. And next minute Storm hit this, this, the shell duck. She struck the thing and the shell duck literally just came tumbling out of the sky. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast and what is now our fourth installment of the Cape Falconry Club series. And I really hope you've been enjoying the series so far and been kind of enjoying getting a new perspective of falconry from a different part of the world. Very special thanks again to the Cape Falconry Club for the invite and for having us help bring their falconry to the rest of the world. It's a a trip I'll never forget, and like I said, I hope you all have been enjoying it so far. Also, a special thank you to the Falconry Heritage Trust for helping to spring for, you know, the grant for the travel expenses to make it there to help get this series recorded. And if you want to help support their cause, which is to help, you know, preserve the falconry culture from around the world and our our falconry heritage, just head to... um, falconryheritage.org and you can find out more information about their organization and donate contribute whatever you'd like to do it would uh, be greatly appreciated and i also want to give a quick shout out and brag some more about bobby yaga crafts from poland who is one of our newest sponsors and as you know you have heard me uh, brag about his products for a while now on the podcast great stuff i just got some more of his anklets and uh, can't wait to use them for the upcoming season as i've stated before you know the uh the anklets that he makes with the marshall easy twist nuts sewn into him is uh, is my personal favorite he uh, makes everything handcrafted the stitching and the leather and everything is, is of the highest quality so if you haven't checked out his products yet i highly recommend you do so all of our information for how to get a hold of him can be found on our website at falconrytold.com or you can just look him up on Instagram. It's uh, at Bobby Yaga Goshawk on Instagram. So definitely check it out if you haven't. It's well worth your time. Okay, and in this episode of the Cape Falconry Club series, we bring you all Trevor Ertel. And I know that I'm not pronouncing that right, Trevor. You'll have to forgive me. <laughs> There's only so much you can do with the Southern Indiana twang to a degree and uh, not being able to roll your R's. So anyway, do my best. <laughs> so like I said, apologies, but hey, man, it was uh, it was a good effort. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, so Trevor's uh, one of the guys that was instrumental in getting uh, falconry legalized and maintained in the western cape area he uh, also brings uh, like a lot of these guys just a wealth of knowledge and experiences i really think that you'll enjoy this conversation hopefully like you have the rest of them so far in the series too but trevor's definitely got a lot of um, interesting experiences and stories to share about that process and yeah man i, I can't do it justice by talking about it so as always, we're just going to go ahead and jump right in uh, to this conversation with Trevor, and I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Yeah, I'm glad that at least, as, as tiring as it is, as crappy as it is outside, I'm glad that I've had um, a lot to do today to kind of fill, you know, what otherwise is just a just a wash of a day oh absolutely john i mean what would we have done with ourselves (laughs) if it wasn't for the rain so yeah it's probably a blessing in disguise well probably you know what we're doing right now which is you know kind of you know drinking but (laughs) absolutely (laughs) i think we might have been drinking a bit more yeah probably probably which cheers by the way we'll go ahead and and, uh, to your health yep Welcome yep. to to Africa. Well, thank you, thank you. So you've lived here your your whole life. I've lived here uh, not my whole life, but essentially the bulk of my life. As yep. a youngster, I moved to my my father was actually involved with General Motors. He was fairly senior in General Motors, and he had to open up a branch in Luxembourg, and that's literally how my falconry career started as a young kid. I hmm. uh, moved to Luxembourg. I was all of five years old. I just started school in South Africa. 
uh, moved to Luxembourg and it was a case of, you know, we either go to what they call the American school or we go to the the local uh, Luxembourgish school. And of course, in Luxembourg, it's German or French. Those are the two languages. And we literally arrived as kids. And I remember one of my teachers, she gave me a picture dictionary book. And while scrolling through it, there was a photograph of a gentleman busy feeding a peregrine falcon. And that was me down the tubes. That was 30-something years ago. No, yeah, 30-something years ago. Can you believe it? Yeah. And how, how, I'm sorry, how young did you say you were again around that time? I was five. Five? Yeah. I, as I say, I just started school. In yeah. fact, as a youngster, the funny thing was that I was, uh, why? I mean, you know, I'm sure many of us ask ourselves, how did I become interested in falconry? Why did I become interested in falconry? I always claim I probably just got dropped in my head when I was born. <laughs> um but yes, it was a case of I had a passion for birds as a young kid. Uh, we had a lot of f- friends that were farmers, a lot of family also that were farmers. And all of these guys, all of them seemed to keep crows as pets. It was just, it was the norm with with a lot of our, as I say, family and, and family friends. And I looked at the crows and I thought, you know, these things are really nice, but I would really like um, a falcon or a hawk. Uh, not for a minute even knowing or thinking about falconry. It was literally just a case of having a pet hawk that I could let fly and call it back. The hunting side of things just never, you know, didn't feature with me. And as I say, as a five-year-old kid, paging through through a a little German German picture dictionary with a with a of all things a falconer, <laughs> and that was how I started. Well, and and you said that a lot of people kept crows as pets. I mean, like, did you guys have them as well, or was was that something? That- no, not at all. No, it was something that I looked at getting. Um, obviously, before I I saw that that, that realized that there was something such as falconry. Um, so no, I didn't have a crow. Uh, funny, the funny thing at the moment is that I'm actually involved with what you Americans call abatement. I prefer to call pest control. Mm-hmm. Um, my son, myself and my son, we uh, do uh, pest control work in Dubai, in the UAE, and one of our main target pest birds are crows. So I have a, I have a soft spot for crows. I mean, they're super bright, etc. Uh, they're good fun to hunt. But yeah, I'm actually chasing them around, around the sandpit, um, <laughs> having great fun. That's what yeah. I do if I'm not in South Africa. Yeah. So, I mean, do you commute back and forth then i mean how often are you are you back and forth well the idea initially was to uh was to sort of commute every every few months um and then of course covid caught us and i literally got stuck in in dubai for a few years um what i think if i remember off and the covid our covid lockdown was roughly two years so the idea now is to commute backwards and forwards um i also have an import export business and that was uh, literally what I was doing in Dubai was was to help my son set him up in his business, um, get James on his feet, and then um, start an, ex- uh, an import-export business, um, uh, which I have at the moment. It's called SAB Concepts. The SAB stands for South Africa Plan B. We, one, always <laughs> has to, one always has to look look ahead just in case. Um, so, yeah, that's what I do at the moment. Um, obviously, as I say, now that COVID is a thing of the past, it will be backwards and forwards. Ideally, what I'm, what I'm aiming at, I'm now at that age where I'm sort of looking at retiring. I probably started looking at retiring when I was about 18, but uh, be that as it may. Um, I'm kind of looking at six months in Dubai and six months in in South Africa, literally coming through for our winter months and just doing six months of of solid hawking. That's in an ideal world. Yeah, well, I mean, in my ideal world, I wouldn't work either. Uh, I don't know many of us that would. Although, I mean, there are some people that are just straight, you know, workaholics that just live to work. Um, I definitely don't consider myself in that in that category. But, uh, but I mean, I guess if you've been able to do things that you enjoy, which I mean, it sounds like for the most part you have kind of enjoyed. Oh, very much. You so. Know? so I mean, it can't can't be that bad for you. No, I no, guess. no. Very yeah. much. No, I've enjoyed every minute of. of my life trust me i came into this world screaming and shouting and i'm gonna leave screaming and shouting as well (laughs) i'm not gonna go out easily that's for sure yeah well and you know so as far as those uh 
like kind of inter intermediary years between you know school and and everything else i mean what um i mean what were you doing kind of early on you know with with falconry i mean how did you kind of get introduced into it past you know i mean obviously you you just talked about how you you found out about it but did you have anybody that kind of um you know helped you at an early age with it or as a youngster, yes, in Luxembourg I did, and I can just unfortunately only remember the the gentleman's first name, and that was Hart Thomas. He was a he was an uncle of a friend of mine from school, and he started showing me the ropes. We played around with a kestrel for a while. I mean, I must have been uh, seven or eight at that stage, and it was literally a case of you know you find your find your uh, find a nest. Uh, we'll have a look at what you found, and if it's good enough for falconry, we'll uh, we'll lift an ice and life carries on. Now that was in the in the uh, early seventies, nineteen seventies, and um, as luck would have it, we did find a nest. We found a, a European goshawk nest. Uh, habished, and I was very excited, and I spent a lot of time watching these these birds, and I was sort of getting ready to 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 pull an eye. So the truth of it is, I suppose it probably wouldn't have been the best best bird for 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 a youngster. But anyway, um, and just before the birds were ready to to take, um, came home, and my dad says, "We have a choice: we go to the states, or we go back to South Africa." Um, often I wonder what would have happened if we'd moved to the States. Who knows? Maybe I'd be out hunting sage grass somewhere. Big boomers. Um, but yeah, we decided to head back home, got back to South Africa, literally got off the plane, um, arrived at Nature Conservation. I twisted my mom's arm to take me to, to the local co uh, Nature Conservation of office. Um, which was in Port Elizabeth, and as a youngster, I will never forget. Um, I mean, I was probably a bit taller than most, but I remember looking up at this old gentleman, and he was quite a tall, lanky guy. Um, and I said, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to do falconry. How do I go about it? And the gentleman looked at me, and he said, falconry, he says, um, in a very broad South African accent, uh, what's that? The study of flowers. <laughs> I remember thinking as a as a kid, I'm just trying to work out how old would I have been. Um, I would have probably been nine, maybe going on ten. And I remember looking at this gentleman thinking, you idiot, that's botany. Um, anyway, I explained to him what falconry was. And... Um, as soon as I got on to hawks, eagles, owls, and falcons and the like, it was a case of, no, nah, that's illegal. You may not do that. Um, anyway, long story short, my mom and I left both disheartened. And as we were driving, funny enough, still to the hotel, we hadn't even, at that stage, we hadn't even, uh, my parents didn't even have a home. Uh, we were living in a hotel. We stayed in a hotel for many months. Um, we drove back to the hotel and my mom said, just don't tell your dad. My dad was a stickler for, for, for certain things, and abiding by the law was one of them. And she said, "Just don't tell your dad." And it was a, it was a secret that her and I kept for many, many years. I started falconry illegally. It was, um, it was probably one of the was something that sort of formed who I am as a person. I've been very, very active in the South African falconry uh, scene for many years from a legalization point of view. Um, I was involved with the formation of SAFA, um, the Cape Falconers Club, um, and a few others. Um, and my motivation was that I just don't want my son or any friends to have to go through illegal falconry because it, it 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 wasn't easy, um, you know. As a youngster, I was flying African goshawks, jackal buzzards, etc., and these birds were, you know, part of the manning process was literally to tuck the bird under your jacket in case I came across some, uh, you know, someone as I'm walking along with a hawk. Um, I just couldn't afford it, so the bird would quickly be slipped into the jacket, um, and we'd hope for the best. Um, I was very lucky, and this is where I became legal. Um, in in those days, we had to do um, national service conscription. We had two years of con conscription in South Africa. And I was fortunate, due to my dad's um, work, he supplied a lot of earth-moving equipment to the South African Army. And their chief buyer came to visit. 
and of course saw me with a falcon as a young boy. I, I was a young schoolboy, but I remember off that I was probably about. 14 or 15 at that stage and uh, the gentleman's name was Colonel um, Colonel Frick van Oetzeren. Um and Colonel van Oetzeren said you know when you when you're old enough and you get your call-up papers send them through to me because we need people like you um, the Air Force has a little little falconry division to keep birds off the runway and that's what I did for my two years national service and since then, I've been fighting tooth and nail <laughs> to to legalise falconry in South Africa. As I said, I, I had a hand in the in the in the uh, Cape Falconers Club, myself and Edmund Utley. We had a hand together with the late Ron Hartley uh, in the forming of 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 SAFA, the South African Falconry Association. So yeah, I've tried to I've tried to do things by the, the, the straight and narrow, as it were. <laughs> well, and I mean, just to clarify, though, I mean, was it that it was expressly illegal or that it was just that there really wasn't any regulations? No, it was expressly legal, hmm. illegal um, to such an extent. And this is why I say, you know, I, I did mention earlier on, my dad was a bit of a stickler for abiding by the law. And I, if I recall, it was probably around about... I probably would have been in standard, standard eight, which I think in your terms would be grade grade 10, um, 15, 16 year old kid. Uh, I came home and my dad actually called me into his office and he had a um, the local newspaper, the Herald. Um, the middle middle spread of the newspaper was falconry and illegal falconry and, and the consequences of illegal falconry. And um, in those days, and we're talking many years ago, the fine was was 2,000 Rand. Bearing in mind in those days, at one stage, the Rand was actually, believe it or not, stronger than the US dollar. <laughs> you know, so it was, if they were hefty fines, as I say, it was 2,000 Rand. You also ran the risk that your car might be confiscated. And of course, I, you know, I was a kid, so I relied on my parents and their, and their vehicles. It was either um, at one stage on a bicycle with a hawk, um, on foot with a hawk, um, at a later stage with a, a motorbike with a hawk, um, or, or mom or dad's taxi. That's how I got around. And as I say, my father, you know, showed me this article and said, well, what I'm doing is illegal and it's got to stop. And I told him it's not going to stop. Um, he was quite upset with me. But the the ramification of what that was that I was not allowed to use his car. He said, your hawk's never going to my car again. Um, I'm pleased to say that he traveled a lot. <laughs> so between my mom and I, when yeah. he was away, the two of us took advantage of his car. But yeah, no, there were, there were hefty fines. The, the, the main reason why I did falconry illegally, um, I mean, I, I do believe we should all abide by the law. But in those days, as I said, we had a lot of family and, 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 and family friends that were farmers. And in those days, falconry was illegal, but you could shoot uh, birds of prey fairly um um i'm just trying to think of the right word indiscriminately Indis indiscriminately yeah the law if i remember correctly the law said something to the effect of if you had a problem animal in effect what you had to do was concent uh, concentrate the the local uh nature conservation your equivalent of fish and wildlife um officer Notify him that you have an, uh, that you have a problem animal, and then uh, he would she he or she would come over and have a look see, um, and then decide whether the animal was a problem or not. Um, long and short of it was, if they felt it was a problem, and shooting the animal was was uh, the the right sort of um, recourse, then so be it. Um, but where the loophole was was that if you and I'm going to put this in inverted commas, if you couldn't get hold of your local wildlife official, you could then shoot the animal as long as you notified them. If I remember offhand, it was within 14 days. <laughs> so, yes, there were a lot of black eagles that probably ended up buried or just left out in the felt. And I know black eagles specifically because, because of our friends. I mean, um, I was presented with quite a few uh, talons from, from, uh, from black eagles, black eagles specifically that were – you know, in those days, they were they were called lamafangers, lamb catchers. Um, and with most farmers, the only eagle was a, the only good eagle was a dead eagle. Um, 
Obviously, the same applied to chickens. You know, if you had a hawk, that a black sparrow hawk or whatever that was ki killing your chickens, go ahead and shoot it. Um, so yes, there were. You know, it wasn't just it wasn't just a um, a figment of one's imagination. There was severe fines. Yeah, so it sounds kind of like you know something similar, except not even necessarily with the monetary reward that was. It's kind of similar to kind of like the bounties that they used to have, you know, back in the U.S. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we used to have those bounties both on 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 birds of prey and then also on jackal and um, what else? You know, guys would hang up their tails and that sort of nonsense. Or you took. I think the other one was the other one was the ground squirrel. If I remember correctly, you could take tails through to your local conservation office, and they would then reward you. Um, you know, if you ran for every tail or whatever the case was. Hmm. Possibly a few cents. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and, you know, out of curiosity, too, then, do you know why or was there a particular reason why at the time it was expressly illegal? I mean, was there or was it just a, a law that was in place that had just been in place and... I, th I think it was just a law that was in place. I think it started off. I'm, I'm specifically talking about what in those days was the Cape Province. Sure. Um, funny enough, and obviously I didn't know that at that stage, but in KZN, what 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 is KZN now, which in those days was Natal, Falkney was legal, and then also in the what we refer to as the old Transvaal, uh, Falkney was also legal. The uh, I beg your pardon was legal. So both the, both in Natal and Transvaal, Falkney was legal. Uh, the Cape, it was, was illegal. And in the Free State, I think the Free State was pretty much, you know, no one really cared. But in the Cape, for whatever reason, it was specifically illegal. Um, I'm not sure why they did it. I think it was, you know, if you look at the old South African falconry history, you've got Jaime von, my, uh, von um, what was Jaime's surname now? Um, I just, I've drawn a blank, sorry, I just can't remember his surname. But he used to fly a lot of red-breast sparrowhawks, uh, lana falcons, etc., in the, in, the, in the Cape in the, uh, just after the Second World War, early 50s, and that sort of, that, that sort of era, there wasn't an issue with it. Um, but somewhere between there and 19, let's say, probably 1970-odd, um, it specifically became illegal. As I say, to such an extent that, that, that they would confiscate your car. You know, that is uh, pretty much, I suppose, the same as poaching. I know that that also applied to poaching at one stage. You know, if you were caught poaching there, one of the, one of the uh, besides confiscating your rifle, they could also confiscate the vehicle. Yeah, so, yeah, and you'd said it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't illegal in, in the other provinces, but just, you yeah. know, around yeah. just well, the Cape Well, the, the interesting thing was once I got into the Air Force, which was, Air Force, which was in 1980, 1983, I ended up in, in, in Pretoria in the Air Force. Um, and shortly after arriving in the, in the Transvaal, we were called in by the by the director of, of, of Nature Conservation. Dr. Pitt Mulder called us in, called all Falcons in for a meeting. And I don't think there were many of us, if I remember offhand, probably no more than 30 falconers, give or take. And he called us into a meeting at his office and there and then announced that um, his department, they don't, they don't really have the resources or the inclination to police falconry. And personally, he doesn't really like falconry, so he's just decided that falconry is illegal. So, um, faulting in the Transvaal, in the then Transvaal, was 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 illegal, made illegal from 1983 until, if I recall offhand, 80, 86, I think 86, 87. So, a, a stint of three to four years, it was illegal. Um, it was an interesting time. Um, obviously, being Air Force Falconers, we were exempt. We, being myself and my colleague Mark, uh, there were two of us that, that that flew birds on the on the on the runways. Um, obviously, from a from an Air Force point of view, it was quite interesting. You know, it, it wasn't a case of you go to do national service and they hand you a book and learn how to do falconry. Uh, Hence why Colonel von Oetzeren brought me in. They needed falconers that 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 actually had knew about falconry, had the ability, etc. My colleague Mark Yannis, he was he was um, a, a a graded or a uh, he wasn't graded. We didn't have grading in those days. We had. Um, 
he had to write some or other exam, um, and he'd passed his exam. He, If I recall, he hadn't actually picked up a hawk at that stage, but Mark was brought in from the medics. He was sent up, uh, he, he went to the medics, did his initial basic training in the medics, and then they brought him into um, into the Air Force as a, as a falconer. The two falconers that we took over from, uh, Len Foster was, uh, was a chef um, in the in infantry, and... Mark Labaskachny, uh, a Transvaal Faulkner, um, still a very active Faulkner. Mark was 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 one of the few that actually went directly into the Air Force. Um, otherwise, they kind of grabbed us from everywhere. But as I say, we were exempt um, because we were the Air Force Faulkners. But after our two-year stint, we were just we were fair game. And unfortunately, that's literally what we became. I mean, you know, you speak to some of the older boys and they'll tell you about being chased all over the countryside, hiding hawks under beds, leaving hawks at neighbors' houses, etc. It wasn't, it wasn't a good time. It doesn't sound like it. No, it wasn't. It was, it was unpleasant. <laughs> well, so, I mean, was it uh, pretty much right after you, you got out and, you know, that um, this – <laughs> the unpleasantness was kind of going on. I mean, was that around the time that you were kind of inspired to try and form some kind of, you know, organization to kind of combat the, you know, try and get it legal? Or, I mean, what what was your kind of inspiration for that? Um, John, to be honest, straight after the Air Force, I had this, I had this, um, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be a cattle farmer or whether I wanted to be a game rancher. And um, it was a case of going off to college, etc., and doing an agricultural degree. And I then decided to actually spend some time with a friend of ours who who did both um, in in the Cape. So I came back into the Cape, back into an illegal environment, and carried on with my falconry illegally. And I had a burning passion as a as a child to get up to what was then Rhodesia, and of course. You know, by the time I was 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 old enough to drive, um, they changed the flag and it had become Zimbabwe. Um, anyway, I'd I'd heard about the Zimbabwean Falkners, and I then decided um, to pack up my 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 Katunda, together with my English pointer Kelly, and the two of us headed up north, and arrived on the on the doorstep of the late Ron Hartley. Um, <laughs> introduced myself and. Ended up in, in in Zimbabwe for many years, and that's really where I got an understanding for for legalized falconry, um, the systems that they were using, etc. And in time, brought those systems back to South Africa, from the grading, um, the grading system that the, that the Zimbabweans were using, um, their their particular method of tethering birds, was something else that we brought back with us. And in time, you know, once I'd, unfortunately, I couldn't, uh, I lived in Zimbabwe illegally, um, being a being a white man in, in a newly independent Zimbabwe, uh, they weren't too keen to take in South Africans. So we tried between myself and, and some of my friends in Zimbabwe, we tried to, uh, we tried to organize work permits, etc. And it just didn't happen. Uh, we tried the, the pest control angle, uh, using falcons for quelia control. Um, and I lived in Zimbabwe illegally for, for, for quite a few years and then eventually decided, look, it's just not going anywhere. It's time to get, get back to reality and actually start earning a, an income and, uh, you know, do things properly. And that's where I brought a lot of the Zimbabwean ideas came back with me. Um, I then subsequently introduced quite a few South African falconers to my Zimbabwean friends, um, and, Myself and a few others got together, together with the, the, the late Ron Hartley, and conceptualized the the South African Falconry Association. We looked at your association, NAFA, um, and for various reasons, it wasn't quite the right model for us. Essentially, NAFA is an individual, um, an organization for individuals, where SAF is an organization for for clubs, associations. So we sort of looked at a mix between NAFA and the and the UK Hawk Board. Um, put what we could together and brought it back to South Africa. Um, and that was, yeah, that was quite a few years ago, 19, in 1990. Uh, we introduced the SAFA model to, to South African falconry. 
And it's it's been a very good model. It's worked very well for us. Um, looking at mentorship, looking at at um, um, grading, just more of a sort of structured form of faulting. And, and why we went that route was going back to what old Pitt Mulder had said. I don't have the resources, both time and money and staff. And we then went back to them with the model of self-policing, self-administration, self-policing, call it what you wish. And that's pretty much what we do in South Africa. Um, mentor, mentor our falconers. We have the grading system. It's, it's, it's a fairly rigorous, rigorous system, but it works. It works very well for us. And, of course, what happened during that, that, that very brief period where falconry was illegal in the, in the Transvaal, there were some horrendous things that happened. Um, you know, youngsters were keen on falconry, but they just didn't know where to turn. They didn't quite know what to, what to do with themselves. I remember one. I hope you, you're going to interview my, my good friend Edmund Utley. Um, Edmund uh, Edmund uh, was actually our vet at that stage, and one of the youngsters ended up with a with a kestrel that he'd 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 mistreated and gangrene had set in, and you know he was petrified to take the the bird to Edmund. So as the Air Force Falconers, myself and Mark took the bird to Edmund quickly to have a look at and. Um, I think the youngster was lucky to get away with <laughs> with the bollocking. Uh, I think he could have got more from Edmund. Um, there was there was an incident where some youngsters went to remove black sparrowhawks, and they didn't quite know what they were doing. So, cut a long story short, they got dad's dad's chainsaw and duly uh, sawed the tree down, and in the process ended up killing. I think if I remember, there were three or four ISs in that in that nest. They ended up killing at least two of them. So, yeah, things weren't pleasant. And this is what we went back to conservation with. And we said, look, you know, we need to, we're not going to go away. Um, we're not going to go away. Let us start uh, policing ourselves and administrating ourselves. And I'm pleased to say that they that they subscribe to that model. And this is where we are today. You know, one of the reasons behind SAFA was it was basically watching the winds of change as it swept across Africa. And Ron actually highlighted it to us. Ron Hartley highlighted it to us that we're going to sit in a position where in those days, South Africa had four provinces. We had the Cape, Natal, Transvaal, and the Free State, Orange Free State. And he said, as soon as you have the political change, which is coming, you're going to end up with more provinces. And we did. I mean, we went from four to, uh, to nine and of course, each province is almost autonomous in their own um, um, in their own sort of legislation as far as conservation matters are concerned. And this is why we needed to standardise things. And that's pretty much the the motivation behind SAFA. Okay, and yeah, I know. Like I've, I've kind of talked about this briefly with um, you know Andre and and some of the others about you know just kind of the subtle differences in models because i mean you mentioned you know you looked you looked at nafa and you you decided that it really wasn't you know kind of ideal or there's it just wasn't quite right and and everything else but i know that's one of the one of the differences in the way you guys do things as opposed to the way that you know we do things that i thought was really interesting was that you know i mean like clubs for us i mean they definitely serve a purpose yes. and and um you know they're good representation for for us as a whole and stuff but individually as you kind of alluded to you know we still do things individually you know very much you know mm -hmm. so i mean we can as individuals be members of of nafa and our state club and even other state clubs and mm -hmm. and things like that but oh, why in particular did you all feel then that that kind of model of kind of being more of a of a club representation was better for you all here in, in South Africa versus you know having a more individualistic approach. I think John, the, the the short answer is 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 the conservation authorities. The conservation authorities weren't open to dealing with a lot of individuals knocking on their door, and I think it would have, the, the the headache of having to deal with individuals was really part and parcel why they weren't interested in falconry. Whereas um, you know coming to them as a club, uh, a lot of clubs even today they still uh, a part of the the constitution um, uh, highlights the fact that. 
only certain people in that club can actually go and co- uh, uh, can uh, communicate with the conservation authorities. It's usually the the committee, uh, the chairman and the secretary usually are the ones that negotiate our quota with with conservation, give them the annual report, etc. So they don't have to be dealing with forty or fifty different individuals. They're dealing with with two or three individuals, they get an idea of what we're doing, and those two or three individuals through the club keep things going. Um, something that's been quite interesting in our own sort of development, and a lot of a lot of our younger falconers um, didn't quite understand it. I think if you look at if you look at a lot of falconry clubs worldwide, a falconry club is very much a social sort of club. I'm, I'm, I'm specifically referring to the UK. You know, you'd have a group of, of of friends from a particular area, and they decide to form a falconry club, and they meet in the pub, and they do whatever they do. Um, it's a very much of a social type club, whereas with us, falconry clubs are not social. Obviously, as we hopefully going to have this weekend. I mean, it is a social, uh, a social get together, etc. But the the essence behind that club is actually an administrative function, not a social function, and that's pretty much what we do. Gotcha. Okay. Well, thanks for making that distinction because I mean, I, like I said, I'm, I know people are going to probably hear quite a bit, you know, once they listen to this series about some of these different political aspects of, of falconry here. But, um, you know, I, I want to, especially from someone like yourself, who was kind of involved in the, in the early days of it all, um, you know, it's nice to get clarification straight from, you know, kind yeah. of the, kind of the source on that, you know? So, <laughs> you? yeah. But, um, so it was shortly after that then that you guys decided to form the, you know, the Cape Falconry Club too then. Yeah. Yeah. Literally at the same time, same time, um, literally at the same time. Um, there's a lot of, as uh, as we often have with with um, clubs and falconry, there is a bit of politicking obviously behind the scenes and, Edmund and I realized that we weren't with a lot of falconers, we weren't exactly the flavor of the month. And there was a bit of there was a bit of opposition to the falconry uh, to the SAFA model. Um, and I think the main opposition, well at that stage, we felt the main opposition was not the not the principle behind SAFA, but rather the the, the, the characters behind SAFA. Now, as I say, SAFA was was conceptualized by the late Ron Hartley, myself, Dr. Edmund Utley, Dr. Benny Fanamava, uh, Dr. Dieter Necht. Um to a certain extent, uh, Rob Booth as well, um, and but there was a bit of a there was a bit of ill feeling between between uh, myself, Edmund, and some other Falkners, and we realised that it wasn't going to fly as long as Edmund and I were involved, and we actually withdrew. Uh, you know, we put what we could on the table. We we handed handed the reins over to to Benny and and Dieter very much so. Um, Ron obviously wasn't wasn't that involved with the with the actual implementing of things because he was still up in 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 Zimbabwe. Um, and Edmund and I, maybe we were just bored. <laughs> we had too much time on our hands. Edmund had, had recently moved down to the Cape. Um, he'd recently moved down to the Cape from from the, the Transvaal, from Pretoria. And um, he needed to get Falkner legalized. Edmund started working on on, con- on the conservation authorities. And I then came in and, and helped him. And we we managed to get Falkner legalized in the in the Cape. Which was unheard. I mean, it was everyone thought it was going to be impossible. Um, not only did we get falconry legalized, we were actually in those days of all the clubs. Now there were four clubs, uh, as I say, with the four provinces. So we had we had the Free State had just started up just after I left the Air Force. Uh, it was started by a, a, a young a young student by the name of Sean Ranger, together with my cousin, old Pierre Craven. The two of them started the Free State Club through, with a bit of help, from, you know, from me. That was in the early 1980s, uh, just after my um, just after my national service. Then we had the the Transvaal Club, which which we then got going again, um, through a gentleman by the name of Tim Wagner, in nineteen, I think it was eighty six or eighty seven, if I remember correctly, which also included a wild take of peregrine falcons. Uh, they the the conservation authorities allowed us to take peregrines, which was a first. Um, 
And then, of course, the Natal Club. The Natal Club had been going for years, so there was no issue there. Um, so the Cape Club was the was the last of the Falkland clubs to be formed, and um, but we were the first club to have what we called an open season. We basically haven't had an open hunting season. Um, it came about myself just after Cape, Cape Nature had legalized falconry in the Cape. Um, Edmund and I took the the then director of, I think he was director of biodiversity, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Cus Harmon. We took him out uh, hawking with us. We had three peregrines. I had a... Um, I had a, a Scottish female and a and a Scottish tiersel, and Edmund had a little. Um, I think it was a brookyai, a brookyai tiersel, that we'd imported. In fact, the, the tiersel that he had, he'd bred. Edmund was the first falconer in in South Africa to to breed peregrine falcons. He he brought in, uh, he and Benny brought in two pairs of what were supposedly peregrinus peregrinus, but a lot of people thought they were probably brookyai. And the birds bred. Edmund bred a bird by the name of Helen, um, whom he, who he was flying in the in the Cape in those days. Even though things, as I say, were illegal. Um, anyway, we took we took old Cus Hummin out with us. Um, the two Tiersels saw some grey wing, but they didn't they didn't put anything in the bag. But they didn't embarrass us. They flew very well. And my falcon Storm went and caught a hybrid. Uh, problem that we have in the. In the in the Western Cape, in particular, is is um, the local yellowbill duck hybridizes with the mallard, and Stormwind and hooked a uh, hooked a hybrid, and old Cus was doing flick flacks. He was so excited about <laughs> about this hybrid, and anyway, I saw an opportunity and I grabbed it. And while he was doing his flick flacks, I said, "Look, how do you feel about us having an open hunting season?" And based on that, it was a case of motivate it, put it in writing, and I will sign it. Um, and they then gave the Cape Falconers uh, what they called a let life policy, where you could basically go out 365 days a year. Obviously, don't try and hunt things that are that are breeding. Try not to hunt uh, endangered or, or rare birds, obviously. Um, but yeah, whatever your hawk caught, you allowed to you allowed to feed the hawk up on it, and then. Leave the leave the rest of the carcass in the vault for the jackal and the whatever else wants to come and mongoose or whatever. So that, that as I said, that was a first, which then of course went across the country. <laughs> well, and like I said, I'm, I can only imagine how much work all that was for you. But you know, I mean, that's that's a great overview though for kind of just a general history of how everything kind of evolved. You know, with with um, with this country and. Mm. You know, I like I said, I, I find all this stuff fascinating personally, you know, and and, um, you know, I think that the more that people around the world understand what other countries kind of have had to go through, the more that they'll either, you know, they'll appreciate or strive to, you know, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it, it, it understanding, you know, kind of breeds, you know, some empathy, you know, I think, yes, you know, I think so. So too. but, um, it's going back to some of your personal, you know, stuff. And so how did you find yourself then in, in, um, yeah, and you said it was Dubai. In Dubai, yeah. In how, how'd you find yourself, uh, you know, doing abatement there then? <laughs> for my sins, <laughs> for my sins. Um, well, I mean, my falcon is 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 flying peregrine after duck, duck and grey wing Franklin. That's what flicks my switch. I've done some funny things, which really come from my days in Zimbabwe. Um, Catching green pigeons. I mean, green pigeons are just phenomenal birds. Now, in South Africa, it was something that we never really looked at. Um, came back from Zim, and I was catching green pigeons with uh, what we call them lanner tessels. I know the rest, of the, the rest of the world calls them lannerets. I find it sounds like some sort of horrible, contagious disease. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I was flying a lanner tessel, and he did very well. Um, amongst others, he put he put green pigeons in the bag, and he was, as far as we know, he was the first bird to put sand grass in the bag. Um, so yeah, that's my my sort of focus. But I've mentored a lot of falconers. I also, for my sins, started the first bird of prey center of its kind in in Africa, and doing that, um, I had obviously had a lot of interested people approaching me. And one of those interested people was a young, a young boy from um, 
an area in the northern part of our country called, well, in those days it was called Petersburg. It's now called uh, called Polokwane. Uh, I opened up a bird a bird park in the town. And this youngster came up to me and he wanted to learn about falconry. So we we, we, we took old Rowan under our wing. And a few years later, he was in a position where he he was employed, funny enough, by an ex-South African who'd never practiced falconry in South Africa, but was introduced to falconry in the UAE. Um, and Rowan ended up working for him. Uh, doing pest control, control etc. And eventually he decided to go out on his own. And I, I guess when you're, in a, when you're in a bit of a spot like that, you go back to your old mentor. So he knocked on my door and, uh, and employed me as a consultant to help him with his, with his business. And that's how I first ended up in the UAE. Took my son James with me. James and Ruan worked together for 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 a few years, and eventually James went off on his own and again called on his dad. You know, James is just over thirty now, and he's he's grown up with hawks his entire life. Um, but obviously, from a from a pest a pest control point of view, I mean, there's sort of. Uh, pest control is not falcon by any stretch of the imagination. I think we all know that. I mean, um, but he needed a couple of tips as well. So that's pretty much what I did in how I ended up in Dubai, which, to be honest, is one of the most frustrating. It's one of the most, from a falconry point of view, it's one of the most frustrating things that you'll ever go through because you have such a selection of hawks you know one just goes down to the souk and they're just things that that a lot of us just dream about um i mean i looked at a red nape shaheen sitting in the souk and i was just desperate to buy her because it is one of you know after reading old bruce hawk's um it's bruce hawk's book called again oh he's got several oh, he's got several yeah, not plans of the prairie uh, 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 well, there's the hunting falcon. The hunting falcon, that's yeah. the one. And I mean, after reading that book, I mean, <laughs> I think there are a lot of us that w w would give our eye teeth to fly red nape shaheens. And as I say, I'm sitting at the souk looking at this most gorgeous passage red nape shaheen. And I was about to dig into my pocket and buy her. And then I realized, but what do I hunt at? You know, there's just nothing to hunt in the UAE. In fact, hunting is illegal. Um, Obviously, from a pest control point of view, we get special dispensation, etc., to to chase crows around and, and and pigeons. But you know, you're sitting with something that, with thirty, forty duck on a pond, <laughs> I, I would love to have, um, you know, up there with the angels above me. Um, and you just can't. I mean, you know, I've looked at a lot of these birds, and it's such a crying shame. Um, you know, one plays with them, but you don't do falconry with them. Obviously, ideally, one would like to export them to your home country, but all in time, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Well, this would also be a good time now then to kind of transition into, you know, getting one of those memorable, you know, I, I know someone that's been involved in all this for as long as you have. I mean, there's tons of stories and we could go on all day, but what's like that one story or, or like memory that you have, you know, as far as like a hunting experience, a particular bird that you had, or, you know, there's, it seems like there's always at least one or two memorable things, Absolutely. you know? So, I mean, what's, what's yours? John, to be honest, I mean, there's so many of them. I can sit back and think of my, my first sandgrass that I caught. Cause in those days, I mean, it was unheard of. In fact, part and parcel of my, my trip to, to, to Zimbabwe was to see what the uh, what the guys were doing, and they'd been trying for years. That you know, a lot of them used to go up to the Mahati Hati pans in Botswana to try and hunt sandgrass, and none of them were able to put sandgrass in the bag. One of the reasons I took a job in the Kalahari Desert was to go and hunt sandgrass. So yeah, that could be one of those one of those moments. Um, putting two sandgrass in the bag in one flight. I mean, that's another one that comes to mind. But I think for me. Probably one of the most memorable uh, um, flights, and it's maybe because we're sitting in the Western Cape at the moment, it was just down the road from here, is I lived in the Western Cape, obviously, when, when Edmund and I were busy legalizing falconry in the Cape. And it was a Sunday afternoon. Um, Edmund had had a very well-known 
conservationist visiting with them, a guy by the name of Dave Pepler. Now, Dave Pepler is one of those people that he just has a knack of finding peregrine aries. I mean, he's just phenomenal. Um, he helped us out a lot uh, many, many years ago when we when we got permission to take peregrines, etc. But it was a Sunday afternoon and David arrived at Edmund's place. They were having a what we term a braai, you guys call a barbecue. Um, they were having a barbecue and I stopped off at the house and said, look, I'm going out to fly storm my, my Scottish female. Um, and I know she's Scottish because she came from a lovely gentleman by the name of Ray Turner from Gamehawk, uh, fame. Um, you know, Ray's birds, he can sort of, he can take you back to the particular Irie where the, where the genetics came from. So yes, I had my Scottish female storm with me, 970 grams. And I stopped at Edmund's place and said, you know, guys, I'm going. Are you, are you going to join me? And it was a case of, no, no, you know, we, we're still busy, etc. We might go out later, etc. Anyway, I went out, went out to a big dam out in the, in the Wheatlands and um, literally crawled up the, the dam, dam wall. These particular dams in the Wheatland, they have a, um, what we call a shell duck. It's one of our bigger duck. Um, in fact, all the shell duck that I caught were probably give or take over 1.8 kilograms. Nice big duck, strong duck, wild duck. Probably my favorite duck. You know, the yellow bill is quite a tame duck. In fact, with Storm being at 970 odd grams hunting weight, uh, the the yellow bill duck, one almost sort of got the feeling that she should have one in either, in either hand. And... Um, Anyway, my, my passion was Sheldak, and I arrived at this particularly large dam, crept up the dam wall, sort of looked through the, through the, through the bulrushes, reeds, whatever you want to call them, and there was one lone Sheldak on the far side of the dam. Normally, you would have just turned around and gone home, uh, but the Sheldak, because of their wildness, was, wasn't an issue. I cast young Stormwolf, and she was one of those that used to perch on the moon. Um, the higher, the better. And... She went off and did her thing. My wife and I stood and watched at the bottom of the dam wall, stood and watched, and off she went. Eventually, she was a little speck in the sky, and I crept up the wall again, and as I stood up, that shoulder just took one look at me, and off it went. And... I was watching Storm, Sheldak went and it was flying and Storm was quite quite way out as well and she came steaming across the sky and then put in that stoop and I was just watching this never-ending stoop. I mean, she was just coming and coming and coming. By then I had no idea where the duck was, how high the duck was and next minute Storm hit this, this, this Sheldak. She struck the thing and the Sheldak literally just came tumbling out of the sky and I was watching the... <laughs> watching the duck tumbling out of the sky and blow me down as we got closer to the ground. Because at this stage, I would hazard a guess, the duck must have been, it must have been a good 40, 50 foot up already, uh, meters up already. And by the time it got to the deck and it came in my vision, there was Edmund and 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 Dave Pepler. <laughs> <laughs> and literally, uh, I think one of them still had a duck, uh, and the, gr the, the, the the shell duck hit the deck, and it was one of those those moments when it was literally, it just didn't stop tumbling. It sort of bounced and just tumbled and rolled. <laughs> and of course, old Storm was just winnowing, winnowing down and down she came, but literally at their feet. That, to me, especially in where we're sitting today, is, is, is a memory that's, that's, it brings a smile to my face. Sounds like a hell of a flight. It was an awesome flight. <laughs> no, she was a good girl that day. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, those, those are always the memories that, that make it all worthwhile for all the other stuff that we have to go through and, and deal with. And, and yeah, I mean, like I said, it sounds like you've had, you know, a pretty incredible history with all this stuff, you know, and, and, um, you know, uh, <laughs> for all of the the things that, you know, you kind of had to go through and and, um, you know, I hope it, you know, I mean, it seems like it's it's all been worth it for you. You know, I mean, it's absolutely it, it has. Yeah. No, it's, it's I've been rewarded tenfold, yeah. tenfold, which is wonderful. I mean, if I look at some of the in fact, this particular meeting is going to be really interesting. Obviously, I got into breeding as well. And something that I was playing with and which has 
is paying dividends is we start looking at designer peregrines. Now, I know the, the, the Americans came up with the designer peregrine. It was kind of frowned upon in our neck of the woods. Uh, but I started playing with designer, designer peregrines. Now, from what I understand, this particular meat of the of the 14 long wings that will be flown, 10 of them come out, come out of my breeding line. Hmm. So that's that's something quite... I think that's quite an achievement, and it 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 gives you a nice, warm, warm, cozy, cuddly feeling to know that you know your genetics are out there. Uh, the birds are doing well. I mean, we're talking about birds that are really, really performing. So I'm looking forward to seeing those ten, those ten birds go. Well, assuming that we get a clear f- flipping day sometime <laughs> well, in this week. Looks like the rain has stopped, yeah. eh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and and just I mean, before we kind of wrap up, I mean, talk briefly then. If if you if you've had a an established um, breeding project for a while and you've had these lines come out, I mean, how did how did you get into that then? Um, it was just one of those things that we had to do, I guess. Um, it's an interesting it's an interesting question, John, from the point of view that initially, as I say, you know, I'm 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 battling to remember when when Falkney was uh, Falkney was 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 banned in 1983. In, in the Transvaal. I seem to remember it was 1986. It could have been 87 that it was legalized. Um, but one of the conditions of that of that was that we had to go out, get our own peregrines. They gave us, I can't remember offhand, it was two peregrines per year for the next five years, if I remember correctly, that we were allowed to go and harvest. And thereafter, we had to be self-sufficient. So we were literally forced into the breeding breeding side of things the truth of it is we then got to a stage where there were quite a few of us breeding and it kind of fell away i mean we don't we we, we we're not we're not forced to to breed in fact interestingly enough the the western capes specifically um don't actually want captive breeding mainly because their their local ornithologist um possibly rightly so just doesn't feel comfortable with birds sitting in a uh, in a breeding pen. He said, you know, if you look at the numbers of peregrines that we have around, there's absolutely no justification that we can't harvest these these, these birds sustainably. And um, as Andrew says, for them to sit in breeding pens, just you know, wilting away year after year, he said it 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 just it doesn't do his 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 psyche or his heart any good. So go ahead and catch passage birds. Um, from my point of view, I enjoyed the breeding. Um, I've actually, obviously, when I moved up to to Dubai, I needed to to pass my birds on. So that whole line has gone to to a friend of mine. Uh, we've started a. Uh, there are three of us that started a breeding cooperative. So Kat at the moment is sitting with all the birds. Um, but it was interesting, you know. I've flown the I've flown the the uh, Peregrinus Peregrinus. You're Scottish. Um, I've flown the 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 African Peregrine. African Peregrine. The minor Falcon Peregrinus minor has a very a very heavy wing loading. It's quite an incredible bird to watch when they take off the fist. I mean, they literally, they literally hit the deck. You know, the bird starts flapping and and it just drops. And just before she hits the ground, um, off she goes. Uh, so incredible, um, a, a incredibly heavy wing loading. Then you go to your 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 peregrinus peregrinus, not as much. I then flew an anatum, which someone brought in. They brought in a natum. In a few natums came in from the states. This particular tessel came in from from Canada, from Canada. But I trapped a, a passage uh, calidus, which which migrate to to um, to southern Africa all the way from the steppes of Russia, and. All of a sudden, I was sitting with a t- totally different animal. I mean, the, the, your calidus has an incredibly uh, light wing loading, and it literally looked like a like a lana the way it flew. Incredibly buoyant and straight off the fist, and literally mounted uh, fifteen twenty foot before you know within the first two or three wing beats. Um, looking at that, I then played with the idea of putting 
putting um, the African into the into the or the Calidus into the African, um, which would obviously give us a slightly bigger bird, which we needed. Um, you know, the African female can be a bit small for duck. Some of them are intimidated, even with the the yellow bill. You know, yellow bill. I don't I don't do much weighing these days, but I used to weigh a lot of a lot of what I caught. I would weigh, and if I remember offhand, the 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 heaviest yellow bill that I ever put in the bag, if I remember correctly, was one. 1,400 and something grams. Your average is around about 1,100. And a lot of the, the, the Africans were a bit intimidated by the size of the, the yellow bill. Um, so it was nice just to put, you know, put a bit of extra spice in there. Got a slightly bigger bird. And this is how we got into the, the designer peregrines, line breeding um, of designer peregrines. All the hawks that we use are obviously... Um, are obviously um, seasoned. Um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not just seasoned hawks, but um, they'd achieved. They'd achieved what we set out to do. And as I say, we're actually producing some incredible birds. What they're doing currently, the speed that they come in, we actually call them turbos. Um, locally, we refer to them as turbo peregrines. Um, they have. They have the buoyancy that that you get in some of your hybrids. Your, um, as I say, from your lana, you've got this incredibly buoyant sort of uh, floppy type of bird that all of a sudden just drops a gear or two, hits the turbo, and just goes. I mean, they. In fact, I sent some uh, to the UAE to to Dubai, and the Arabs were just blown over. Obviously, they were small birds, uh, which, you know, small compared to, to some of the, the northern races that the Arabs are used to. Um, if I remember offhand, the birds that we sent to the UAE was sort of just touching on 800 grams. Um, so they were still quite small for the Arabs, uh, but they couldn't get over the speed. I mean, these birds were catching pigeons off the fist. And um, a lot of the Arabs actually com commented about, wow. You know, where do these hawks get their speed? They have unbelievable speed. Um, you know, whether whether we'll ever pick up those speeds on 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 um, on GPS uh, transmitters, I don't know. But we're getting some phenomenal speeds. And you know, the birds they'll see a see a pigeon in the distance and they literally just row it in, which can be a problem if not in the right hands. Eh? <laughs> yeah, that can always you know prove to be a. Yeah, it can be a conundrum every so often, to Indeed. put it lightly. But, uh, well, I mean, like I said, I know we could talk the rest of the day about this stuff probably, but, you know, it sounds like we've done at least a, a little bit of a decent job in kind of encompassing, you know, most of your, your history in, in this area, so. or at least a decent <laughs> amount of it anyway. But um, but I, I do want to end with on, on the same note that I have been ending for a while now on a lot of these episodes, and I want to get at least, you know, the best piece of advice or the, the best sentiment that you can leave uh you know current or, or even prospective falconers from from my from my perspective and it's been my my philosophy throughout this get yourself a good mentor i think you know falconry books are wonderful you'll learn i i, I taught myself falconry it's essentially i mean as i say as a youngster left europe and i ended up in in port elizabeth without a falconer within uh, thousands of kilometers there just weren't falconers around. So I had to teach myself. So, yes, my, my advice to any aspiring falconer is find yourself a mentor. Get out there. Find a mentor. Find the right mentor. You know, it's incredibly, um, you know, yeah, you have to have the right mentor. I'm not going to go into too much depth on that one. But, you know, find someone that's out there doing it who's, 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 who's burning the diesel and getting out there with the hawks. Well, not only that too, but as a good personality fit for you as well, you know, that's going to tolerate, yes, you know, absolutely. You know, and, absolutely. and um, because not, because let's just face it. I mean, some, some of the people that are best at what they do, they aren't always the best teachers. This and, is very true. And especially the best teachers for us, you know, yeah. individually sometimes too. Yeah. So, well, I mean, like I said, I mean, I think that's a great note to end on then. And, um, you know, like I said, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this and um you know like i said i it's it's been great being able to to make this work and um you know i appreciate you know everyone kind of you know hosting me out here and um you know like i said i'm i'm hoping that um at some point 
I mean, I, I whoa, is that the sun? That's the sun. That's, is that the sun over there? <laughs> oh, I'll be damned. Well, I mean, I think it's time to get out and yeah, fly some walks. Yeah, it might, it might actually, uh, it, it might actually happen. I don't know, but uh, anyway. Like I said, cheers again, and um, you know I I really appreciate your time, Trevor, and thanks for for being so also transparent. You know, um, thank you, John. You, you know, I mean, I, I don't I don't know if everybody would be so you know open you know with some of the trials and tribulations and some of the things that they you know did in their in their yeah. younger days. You know, and when things aren't all weren't always so kosher, so to speak. But I, I do think it puts things into a good perspective for people, just what, you know, some other people have have had to go through, you know, just to make falconry work. Absolutely, John. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, this is, I look at other countries and I, I, I sometimes think that people don't actually appreciate what they have. Um, you know, I'm not going to name countries, but I do, I have looked at some, some countries and guys, just get your act together, do things right, do it properly, you know, cause you can lose it. I mean, we lost it. We literally lost it overnight. Uh, I'm going back to, uh, obviously to, to, to 1983 when old Dr. Pitmulder said, boys and girls, that it's, that's it. I don't have the resources. I don't have the time. I don't have the manpower. And you know what? I actually don't like falconry and yeah, it can always be taken away. so fight for what you have and enjoy what you have and thank you so much for your time and for coming all the way down south yeah no like i said i i enjoy seeing the world and i'm i'm really glad that um you know things have worked out um yeah i'm really glad things worked out to where i can not only see some of the world but also see falconry in so many different places and meet you know a lot of incredible people yeah so absolutely so it's amazing we all we we, we, you know we all come from different different nations different cultures but there's there's that passion that really binds us and it binds us incredibly well i don't think people actually realize that um you know especially you know in my case dealing with with some of the emiratis i mean we might not speak the same language but i tell you what when we start talking hawks eh, (laughs) we're all on the same page Um, uh, whether it's just through hand motions, etc., but we understand each other, and there's, there's that, there's that, that camaraderie ship and that brotherhood, um, and dare I say, sisterhood as well. You know, there are a lot of, lot of good girls out there flying hawks, and we, we all, we all share a passion, and, and I think it's, it, I think a lot of people see that passion, and they, they're probably surprised by, by how that passion has bound us. Yeah. So yeah. No, couldn't agree more. And um, like I said, I. I'm appreciative of, of the opportunities that this that this whole endeavor has kind of brought, and um, yeah, I mean, like I said, hopefully, um, hopefully we'll we'll get to see some damn birds fly soon, man. You know, <laughs> well, I know that they, I know that they're dead of my breeding out there. That yeah. I'd love to see the next few days. So yes, <laughs> all right. Well, thank hope, you, John. Yeah, thank you, and hopefully we have some fun the rest of the week. Excellent. Here. Thank you so much. Be all good. Right. Thanks, Take Trevor. Care.